Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Pray and pray with me that we'll understand this passage that he speaks to us well tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for the clarity which you speak in this passage. Help us to read it. Take it to heart. Believe it. And live changed lives that will honour you as a result. Amen. Now you can't avoid that passage that was just read and, and not just feel and see the well that Jesus is judging fairly clearly. Woe to you this, you hypocrites this, you brood of vipers. He's making some fairly firm judgments. And I think to make the most of this passage today, uh, one of the things I need to start with is just orientate you to the whole concept of judging and how to do it well and then apply it to this passage and we'll come back to it at the end. So to do that, I want you to flip in your Bible or come on the screen. Have a look at this verse from Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. I think this is a verse in the Bible that almost every single human being, Christian or otherwise, knows really well. And it says, do not judge or you too will be judged. Um, everyone thinks they've heard that verse. Everyone has understood that verse. Everyone wants to apply that verse to others. And that's part of the problem we've got when you take literally half a sentence and think you're an expert in it. Um, and what happens is something like this. Imagine with me, you're in a conversation. You've just said something that has really upset someone. They're quite offended at what you've just said. They don't like it. They're a little bit put out. And they say to you, hey, don't judge me. Jesus said, don't judge, so you, you stop it. You stop judging me. And I want to say, that actually is, it's a bit of an abuse of Jesus' teaching. Because as soon as they say to me, stop judging me, I actually want to say to them, well, stop judging me for judging you. You're judging me now because I've made a judgment. That seems to be a bit hypocritical to me. Don't be so judgmental yourself at my at what I'm doing. You see, people want to have one rule for other people, don't judge me. But then as soon as you apply that rule, you break that, you break it for, uh, you break that same rule yourself. And that's actually being a hypocrite. And I don't think that's on. And that is the danger of taking half a sentence of Jesus' teaching, not really understanding or, or getting what he's getting at, manipulating it to mean what you want it to mean, and then abusing Jesus' teaching for your own good. Now, I think that's really important for our passage today because, well, Jesus is the one who actually said that half verse, do not judge. And yet here in Matthew 23, what he's doing is unleashing a judgment on seriously wayward people. And boy, he doesn't hold back. Like I said, he pronounces these seven woes against the teachers and the law and the Pharisees. And in doing so, he's handing down, it's a chilling judgment. Because he will use language like, you children of hell, you dead rotting corpses, you snakes, you hypocrites. And some people have read this kind of passage and thought, what's going on here? Isn't Jesus the one who earlier said, do not judge? And yet here he is pronouncing judgments. Jesus calls them hypocrites, but hey, is he the hypocrite here? Now, you only come to that conclusion if you have superficially read 
what Jesus said back there in Matthew chapter 7. Because if you go back to Matthew chapter 7, you can clearly see that he cannot mean, even when he said it, he cannot possibly mean don't, make ever, don't ever make any discernments or judgments on people. He cannot mean that because even just a few verses later in chapter 7, when Jesus makes that statement, he will talk about it. And look, at, it'll come on the screen. In Matthew chapter 7 verse 6, he'll go on to say, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Jesus is actually saying, you've got to realise there are some people out there who are so reckless with things that are of heavenly value that he calls them dogs or swine. And he says, you've got to recognise them for what they are and be wise. And if they're going to just trample really precious heavenly things underfoot, then be discerning enough not to give them such precious things. You'll have to, and to do that, to obey Jesus' command there, you will have to make some discernments. You'll have to make some judgments about whether someone is or is not a dog or a swine in the language of Jesus here. So when Jesus says, do not judge, if seven verses later he's calling on you to make discernments, he cannot mean, don't ever make any evaluations whatsoever in discernments. And if that isn't what he meant, what, what does he mean? Well, you've got to read the second half of the verse, don't you? Look, look at chapter 7, verse 1 again. Here's the second half of that verse. Do not judge, and notice Jesus links it to the future. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. There's a link here that your judging now will have a, has a link to something in the future. Now, what is that link? Look at the next verse, chapter 7, verse 2. Jesus spells it out because it's so important. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used to you. Here he is spelling out that link and the link is this. That the measure you use to judge someone is the measure that God will use to judge you. Now that is critical, isn't it? That's the link between how you make discernments and judgments now to how you will be treated in the future. That link is critical. It's critical to understand this passage, but it's critical in your own life, isn't it? Because there are, I like to say there, there are two ways to judge. Two ways to judge. Uh, imagine someone has said something to you that this time you find offensive. That's got you all worked up. How do you respond to someone who said something so rude to you? Well, two ways to judge. Here's way A, the first way. You could say, you know, what they've done to me, it is an absolute disgrace. How dare they treat me like that? They deserve to be condemned and condemned them I will. And they deserve everything they get. And I will tell anyone who's willing to listen. Okay? Way A. That's one way you could judge. Alternatively, though, you could judge like this. Way B. What they've done and said to me is not good. In fact, it, it is outrageous. But they do not know their left from their right. Poor person, they've fallen into temptation again. Maybe even they're trapped in it. They need help. 
given this is how I judge them, I better treat them gracefully. You know, I better go about treating that person better than they deserve to be treated. They need my help, not my condemnation. Two ways to judge. Same incident, two ways to judge. And Jesus says, with the measure you use, it'll be used to you. Be careful how you judge. You can judge in a very judgmental, critical way, or you can judge truthfully, yes, but generously. Okay. You've got judging under your belt now. Come now to Matthew 23, and let's see Jesus, the master at work, as he actually pronounces some judgments, and we'll see with some clarity what he's going on about. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. This is where we're going to spend the rest of the night, 23. Here's the first one he's got. You ready? Listen up. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. I mean, Jesus is not backwards and coming forward to his judgment here, right? You hypocrites, woe to you. And why woe? Because these religious leaders, these Pharisees and the teachers of the law, their teaching was utter poison. They thought that they were holding out the the elixir of life for people. But in fact, what they had was a poison chalice. You know, rather than being spiritual teachers, it's like they were spiritual terrorists. Because in rejecting Jesus, not only were they keeping themselves out of heaven... Worse than that, they are then constantly undermining and stopping other people from listening to Jesus and being saved. And Jesus here is disgusted by their hypocrisy. And I was trying to get you to feel the weight of this. Um, It's a little bit like this. Imagine someone genuinely, and I mean genuinely, found a cure for cancer. Imagine that happened and there were these people around And they had cancer, but in their foolishness, they were just completely unwilling to take the cure. I mean, it had to be sad enough for them in their own life, right? But imagine, imagine the evil it would be that not only do they stay themselves refuse to take the cure, but get this, they then go out of their way to stop other people who've got cancer from taking the cure. I mean, that really is. We would be outraged if that genuinely happened. That really is offensively disgusting behaviour. And we feel that acutely. We'd say something like a cure for cancer. But friends, can I say, as serious as that would be, that's a nothing compared to what's going on in this passage. Because Jesus here, he's not just talking about life and life in the here and now on earth. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about the reality of heaven and the very serious reality of hell. And imagine not just refusing eternal life for yourself, but then going out of your way to stop others and to take them to hell with you. I mean, that needs to be judged for what it is. I mean, you be careful how you judge or the measure you use will be used to you. But that needs to be judged for the evil for what it is. 
And Jesus calls it out and he said, he's effectively saying, woe to you, they can go to hell. Because that's where they're taking people. And look, it's even worse than that. For not just content to do this kind of stopping other people and themselves in their local patch, they don't just want to harm people where they are, they want to multiply and make it even more effective. And so they pay for missionaries to go over land and sea to seek converts that says here the Pharisaism to produce even more people who can keep even up even greater numbers of people out of heaven. Look at verse 23. Jesus goes on. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Verse, verse 15, sorry. Chapter 23, verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you've succeeded, you make them twice as so much a child of hell as you are. You know, uh, you'd be familiar with this maybe. Most young Mormon men leave the state of Utah and they leave the state of Utah for two years of missionary service, dropping themselves in places like here in Australia, dressed up like FBI agents riding bicycles, right? And they come into our, into our land, knocking on people's door, offering a Jesus. Offering a Jesus that is not the true Jesus, and enslaving people to a greater judgment than they were they were before. And God sees that. And he's offended. Woe to them. And I think we, in, in seeing this, we, 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 there's a principle here that we need to see and that we need to really take careful note of in our own lives. And the principle here is this, that zeal and truth those two things must go hand in hand. You see, what these Pharisees have is zeal. I mean, they have drive. They have passion. Going overseas to make just one convert. They have, man, they, they got drive. But all that zeal without the truth, oh boy, that's dangerous. You've got to have both. And I think one of the great things about these woes is not only do they reveal to us what, what disgusts God, but when you flip it and see the kind of opposite of the woe, you actually, it starts to reveal to you what he loves, what he really wants in people, what, he, what, what delights him. So think about that first woe. Do you know what really puts a smile on God's face? It's people entering the kingdom of God. Oh man, he loves that. And you know what makes that smile on his face even bigger? is that he is so delighted when people not only have entered themselves, but then they go out of their way to help others enter. Now, he is delighted in that. But with his second woe, what's the opposite this time? What's the positive that God loves? Or what he loves is passion, drive and zeal being connected with the truth. Oh, that's what he loves. And it's made me wonder about Christians here in Australia, maybe Christians here in Wollongong for us. And I wonder why it's good for us to see the danger of having passion and zeal without the truth. I wonder if that's really not our problem. I wonder if for some of us our danger is not zeal without the truth, but truth without the zeal. And that's what we've really got to watch for. Truth without drive and passion. God delights in the two being in hand in hand in your life. 
Okay, now there's more bad fruit that Jesus wants to highlight here in the teachers of the law and Pharisees. Uh, Look at verse 16. Here's the next woe. Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if someone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by an oath. (laughs) You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. Now, can you get a feel for what God is disgusted by here? He's disgusted by people. Uh, in this case, he's highlighting the, these religious leaders who have no love for telling the truth. By people who, instead of loving the truth, actually begin to play games with the truth. Who justify their own evil behaviour by sophisticated, clever arguments, which really all they're doing is redefining what is right and wrong. You see, these guys Jesus is talking about here, they would instruct people, get this, on when you can and cannot break your word. And to justify not keeping their word, they had rules like, you know, if you made a promise or an oath, and you made that on the temple that had an altar in Jerusalem, and you know, say you promise, I'm going to pay you back that $500 by the end of June, you made a promise like that, and you swore by, say, um, the altar. They would say, you know, you don't really have to keep that. But if you had sworn by the gold, the gift on the altar, oh, that's a whole completely different question. If you swore by the gift on the altar, now you'd really have to keep your word. If you can work out what's the difference between the altar and the gift on the altar and why one means you have to keep your word and one means you don't have to keep your word, you'd be just as much a child of Satan as they are. Because that's just ridiculous, isn't it? It's just, complete, it's, just, it's just foolish. It's actually quite childish. That's about as sophisticated as a four-year-old saying to their mum, Mum, I have my fingers crossed behind my back. I don't have to keep that promise I made to you. That's about as how sophisticated as it is, right? Oh, it's ridiculous. It's everywhere in our society. You guys are probably too young, and so I'm sorry for this illustration. You're too young, but quite some years ago, there was an election in this country for the prime ministership, and promises were made like they're always made at elections. And a year or so later, some of those promises weren't kept. And the politician of the day started saying, oh, that wasn't a core promise. It was a promise, but not a core promise. And there was this distinction made between core promises and promises, as if core promises are the ones you've got to keep, but non-core promises, hey, you, can, you don't have to keep those ones. Outrageous behaviour. Just just sophisticated, clever words to justify, let's face it, lying. And if it's not little kids crossing their fingers or politicians with core and non-core promises, it's, if, think of the, um, the media, the j- journalism. You know, they have this language of, am I on the record or am I off the record? As if when I'm off the record, I'm allowed to speak the truth. But when I'm on the record, I'm allowed to lie. outrageous blind men now, jesus is thoroughly disgusted by it and he cuts through the absolute folly of it look at verse 19 where he says you blind men which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred therefore anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it and anyone who swears by the temple 
swears by it and the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. In other words, everything belongs to God, whether it be the altar, the God on the altar, the gift on the altar, whether it be whatever you swear by, God owns the whole universe. It doesn't matter what element of it you swear by. It belongs to him, so keep your word. Jesus actually cut through this earlier, hadn't he? Back in chapter 7 and a bit later on, I think, where he talks about, um, chapter 5, 6, 7, where he talks about simply yet your yes be yes and your no be no because anything else comes from the devil. We worship Jesus who is the way, the truth and the life. Our God is a God who keeps his word. We ought to be people, his people who keep our words too. And it has made me wonder about this attack, this judgment of Jesus on these religious leaders. And it's kind of made me wonder, gee, where, where might Christians be tempted to sin in a similar kind of way and kind of play fast and loose with the truth? And I wonder if some of the ways we could possibly do it, or it has been done in my lifetime, is you see this where Christians often reread the instructions about divorce and, and marriage. You see, what is marriage? Before it's about love, it's actually about making promises. Before God and in front of a congregation of people, vows are made, promises are made. But it is amazing that how, when pain can come into a marriage, how many Christians want to keep undermining what I would call the very plain reading of Scripture about marriage and divorce. Now, there are exceptions that where Jesus does allow divorce to happen. There are, you can read about them, they're there. But I, I tend to find that beyond that, people keep wanting to increase the exceptions as if Jesus didn't really understand our modern circumstances or my particular marriage. Or he must be talking to someone else when he said, well, what God has joined together, let no man separate. I think, I think we really need to heed the words of King David in Psalm 15 when he's reflecting on who is the right, what does a righteous man look like, a righteous person, man or woman. And he talks about one who keeps an oath even when it hurts. We need to keep our vows. Now, look, I recognise I'm also talking, I've got, I've got some age on most of you guys, not all of you except for Nigel and Natalie over there, which is great to have them with us. <laughs> But I've got a special word. Can I say I've got a special word for the Lord, for people who are born beyond 2,000? Like, I've got a word for people who are younger and born beyond 2,000. I, I, I think where this applies. Um, you ready? Here it is. You get invited to a party and you, and, and, and you say, yes, I'm going to go to that party. But then, then you get another invitation to another party that you think is actually going to be better than the first one. What do you do? Let your yes be yes. You go to that first party. Let your yes be yes. You keep your promises. Okay, here's the next way. Something else that God is repulsed by. And this time he is repulsed by people who focus on the minors and not the major things in life. People who nitpick over minutia while actually overlooking things of massive importance. See how Jesus words this one? Uh, verse 23, Matthew 23, verse 23. 
uh, Jesus says here, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more weighty, important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out the gnat, if you know, and that's like a, like a little flea, which is the smallest of the unclean animals in the Old Testament. You strain out the gnat, but then you swallow a, a camel, which is the largest of the unclean animals in the Old Testament. Oh. Now, now, you might not get this because of the issue of tithing. I don't know if you've read or understood what tithing is, but tithing was like, it is a law in the Old Testament for Old Testament people. Uh, a tithe was part of God's law for Old Testament uh, Israel. It was effectively like a, it's considered as a, 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 an appropriate but a generous 10% tax. So you earn your money and you give 10% to the temple and to the affairs of what God is doing to the poor, things like that. Just a kind of blanket 10% tax on, on what you earn, on the crops you grow. But just thinking about, I'm just going to give to... You know, when there's less organised government and social welfare, it's just a beautiful thing, a very generous thing that God has. A 10% tithe is what the Jews were required to do. Now, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, they see that command about 10%, that tithing. And, oh boy, they go to town on it. Gee, they go to town on it. And they go right to the absolute minutiae of it. Because they just wouldn't tithe their income or, say, tithe their, uh, their wheat crop out there. They're cooking dinner. And they, they put, well, I'm going to put nine mint leaves in the dish. I, I better keep one aside to give to the temple or something like that. And they, they tithe their spice rack. That kind of level of detail. So pedantic. And yet somehow, while being so careful on this, command, this one command, so careful there and yet so careless. So careless on things that really matter like you know, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And I was trying to think of examples of this where you can see it in the modern day and our lives and maybe even in religious leaders' lives at, at times. And I think there are thousands of them. But I, the one I've got is it's a bit like someone who's a real nitpicker for road rules. You know, you get those people, they really love that they want to obey the law. And that's right, right? You don't neglect the former. No, they want to obey. So they're driving their car and they're obeying every single road rule. And they're very careful not even to go 1K over the speed limit. Imagine you've got a Christian leader who's doing that. That's how they're driving, really uber carefully. But imagine they're on their way to have an affair and commit adultery. Wouldn't you just scratch your head and go, that is ridiculous. You've, you've majored on this minor while completely overlooking faithfulness to your wife. That is disgusting behaviour. Absolutely disgusting. And it needs to be called out as such. Now, I was also thinking about, well, let's just not pick on kind of church leaders or whatever it is. How do we actually uh, think of this in our own lives? I, and I'm sticking my neck out here. I'm, I'll take a risk and stick my neck out. I wonder if this verse actually is worth contemplating and reflecting on a bit more deeply if you've got a perfectionistic personality. See, if you understand this about yourself, because 
I think a perfectionistic personality is more likely to slip into this error than others. Because a perfectionist wants to just have everything perfect, everything right. And in the process of getting everything just perfectly right in its right spot and being really pedantic about that, in the process of getting everything right, as a result, they can end up being a real pain in the neck to live with. So focused on getting the minutiae correct and yet ruining all their friendships and relationships in the process because of that fine detail. Now, you've got to hear me right on this. We need perfectionists around us. We really do. Because on so many things, the details, honestly, they really matter. So we, need, we actually need perfectionists. But the downside is that they can focus on the incy, wincy bit of minutia and potentially not deliberately, but they can harm the relationships of people around them as they do that. Now look, this woe that Jesus has here, it is first and foremost directed at these religious leaders, these, these teachers of the law and these Pharisees. And it did make me wonder then, what about the church as a whole? Where might we as a church as a whole be, be guilty of this kind of activity? And it's made me think of not just a church here, not just church here in Wollongong or just a church in Australia, uh, but the church worldwide. Over, say over the last 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead. Where might we be guilty of this? I think this is one example. I think you can see it in the level of debates that we've had over something like baptism. And should you baptise an infant or should you reserve baptism purely for an adult? Should it be a full immersion or should it be a splash of water? And look, baptism is an important thing. And I think you do want to get the details right. It matters. But it is a sign. And it's often about the sign where people differ. Now, is it a sign of the response to the gospel? That's often where adult baptism people are. Or is it a sign of the very gospel itself? And that's where often infant baptism people are. And they've kind of all books are written and even denominations have been formed about exactly what is it a sign of and... And there's all sorts of minutiae and you can read it and go for your, go for your time. Uh, that's happened over the last 2,000 years, right? And it's not unimportant, but look why all these debates have been happening. When you reflect on the last 2,000 years of the treatment of kids in churches, while it's not widespread, boy, there has been far too many examples of king, kids that have been molested in churches by priests and youth workers and kids workers. And if that is not bad enough, denominations have all too often turned a blind eye when they've found out, trying to protect their own reputation and covering it up, all under the pretext of not wanting to dishonour God. And there are far too many historic examples when, when, when a perpetrator's been found, they've just forgotten about it, turned a blind eye and moved the perpetrator onto another church to destroy other kids' lives. Our shame, our shame was that it took the government, pagans mostly, people who don't open their Bibles mostly, to teach the church about the need to have a child protection policy. I'm ashamed of that. 
We should have been leading the way. Now there are all sorts of standards and good standards in churches all over the place here in Australia. But I want to ask, why didn't that come in the 1920s? Why didn't that happen in the 1820s? Because a priest was believed more than a six-year-old kid was who claimed that a man had touched him where he should not have. Shame on us. While we were debating about the sign of baptism, there were too many kids being abused. Talk about straining out the gnat to swallow the camel. And look, in raising this, if you're here today, and if abuse like that has ever happened in your lifetime in a church, whether it be here at Salt or any other church, please talk to someone about it because that was just wrong, wrong. And please get help. Please talk to someone. Now, Jesus isn't finished there. He's got some more woes, some more things that he's disgusted by and horrified by. Uh, the next one God is horrified by is people who care much more about their outward appearance and couldn't care less really about what's going on in the heart. Look at how he says this in verse 25. Matthew chapter 3, verse 25. Jesus goes on to say, Why do you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites? You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You know, so much time in front of the mirror, so little time before God, all concerned about clean cars, clean desks, clean house, clean skin, but not at all interested in a clean conscience. Hypocrites, Jesus says. People who just wash up the outside of the cup. I mean, fancy doing that. All you do is wash the outside and don't care about what's in the middle of the cup. I, mean, I should have suggested that we have like a real live illustration tonight, that when we have the sausages later on, we, we, we bring it out. And the bottom of the plate is beautifully and sparkly clean. And on the top, there's the leftovers from last time we did dinner at 5 p.m. And you go, now, do you want to eat from that plate? It's just, it's just stupid and foolish, isn't it? Imagine thinking that, that all you have to be to impress God is clean on the outside. Woe to them. Jesus is so disgusted by this shallowness that he gets a second woe. Look, look at verse 27, he'll go on. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, ooh, full of bones and of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. And Jesus here, he's picking up that language of whitewashed tombs. What's going on with that is... Um, uh, in the Old Testament, they had lots of festivals to celebrate some really important moments in the, the, in the life of God's people. And uh, at these festivals, it was a real bummer if you couldn't get involved. And one of the ways that you might be stopped from getting involved in a festival is if you've become ceremonially unclean for a little bit of time. And look, one of the ways you become ceremonially unclean, which is only a temporary thing, but one of the ways you become ceremonially unclean is to come in contact with something that's dead. And so uh, before certain festivals, and particularly the festival of fast, Passover, there was this custom of whitewashing the tombs to really clearly mark them out. So you don't want to accidentally walk over one or get to one so that you become ceremonially unclean. It's nice and bright and shiny, so you, you, you can avoid it. 
and don't become ceremonially unclean so you can then participate in the festival at Jerusalem. And Jesus picks up that imagery and that practice of whitewashing tombs and he says, oh man, that is a great illustration of you guys' life. He speaks to these religious leaders and he says, that's you, you are clean, white and clean and sparkling on the outside, but on the inside, man, you're just full of maggots. It's rank hypocrisy and, and God is disgusted by it. And he hates that level of shallowness. And what this whole section, I think, is revealing to us is, well, think of the opposite. It's actually revealing to you not just what God is dis- dis- what, he, what, he, what he's disgusted by, but it's actually showing us what he really loves, the opposite of it. Because God hates that level of shallowness and hypocrisy. But can you see the beautiful thing here that's revealing to us? You know what our God is like? And how good is this? He's anti-superficial. Isn't that a great thing about our God? He's anti-superficial. He hates it when people can think that they can just look the part and not be the part. He's disgusted by that. But he, he's a, is it so refreshing to know how much he is on about the deep things, the things of integrity and not being so superficial in life. I think that is glorious in our day and age because we live in a day and age that is obsessed with sexy, obsessed with appearance, obsessed with new and fresh things that only ever go skin deep. And God doesn't care about your wardrobe, couldn't care less about what brand of car you drive. He cares about you and your heart. He cares about the things of substance. Now, God is anti-superficial. And he's not after people just, you know, a number of times a day facing a certain direction and repeating a chant as if that's all you need to do to please him. He's on about the heart. It's beautiful. Now, Jesus has one last woe that he gets into on an issue that really truly does disgust him. And this time it's the issue of, I think, willful self-deception. Look at how he, how he words this in verse 29. Jesus goes on to say, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, If we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part in the shedding of their blood, the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started here they're they're hypocrites because they're self-deceived self-deceived about how good they are they think they're pure and great but they just can't can't assess themselves properly and that's a bit like um it's not not many people watch kind of uh what do you call it normal free-to-air tv but you know it's when you watch those the start of shows like um Australian Idol or something like that. You've got to love the start of those shows because all these people hop up to sing and what you realise is people can't assess themselves properly. They, 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 they stand up to sing. They genuinely think like they sound like Madonna or something like that. But in the end, they, you know, they can't even hold a chord and it's just embarrassing right? because they can't assess themselves. Jesus, these are these people. They can't assess themselves properly. And in not assessing themselves properly, they make massive mistakes. We can fall into the same trap. And I, I want to show you how quickly and obviously we do it. You know, when you read the Bible, how often you associate yourself with, the, with what you might call the, the real hero or the good person in the story. 
Now, so you're, you're reading David and Goliath. Okay. You, you don't think of yourself as Goliath. I know, no, I'm, I'm little David taking on the Goliaths in my life. Or you read about Noah and building the ark. You know, and you're thinking, no, no, I'm not going to be one of the scoffers. I'd be there rolling up my sleeves and helping him make the ark. Or you read the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the, 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 the half-dead man's on the side of the road and three people go past him and two of them do nothing. And you go, oh, that wouldn't be me. I'd be like the Samaritan who stops and helps someone. And you read into yourself in the story and you think, I'm always the good guy. And be very careful not to have yourself on. Christians over the centuries have had themselves on very regularly. I think you see it in how we've treated some of the great people of the Christian faith in history, where we've loved to praise what gets called dead saints. But when they were alive, we treated them like dirt. So someone like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English, if you've got an English Bible in front of you or on your phone, you stand on his shoulders he was the one that went, okay, the English-speaking people don't, can't read the Bible in their own language. Someone needs to do something about that. I'll do that. And so he starts to translate the, the New Testament into English. And what did he get for it? People in the church hated him. They were threatened by him. He actually got run out of England. He had to protect his life by, by escaping England to go to Germany. And while he was in Germany, he kept going. He kept going with the New Testament. He got that finished. He was working on the Old Testament. They hunted him down. They found him. They executed him by strangulation and then burned his body at the stake. And it's the very religious people who were thinking, you know, I would have sided with Noah. I would have listened to the prophets if they were alive in our day. And they were having themselves on. Self-deceived people and in their self-deception, unable to assess themselves properly and ignorant of the danger of hell that they are in. And Jesus sees this. And he judges it. But remember, there are two ways to judge, right? Two ways to judge. How does he judge? He's been very forthright. He's not minced his words. But look at what he does next, which exposes the heart of Jesus. Look at verse 23. Uh, sorry, 33. Verse 23, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, and what do you expect him to say next? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I'll condemn you to hell, I will. He doesn't say that, does he? See what he says next? He says, therefore, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Why would he do that? Because he sees them and he thinks, what they've done is not good. In fact, it's outrageous. Worthy of condemnation, but, but they don't know they're left from their right. Poor people, they're falling into temptation. They're even trapped by it. They need help. And given that's how I judge them, I'll judge them, I'll treat them graciously, I will treat them better than they deserve to be treated. And I will send them prophets and sages and teachers. What a king we have. He's not taking any pleasure out of exposing their failings and hypocrisies. In fact, this is the city that he weeps over. I mean, just look a few verses later in verse 37, you see his heart again. Verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets 
and stoned those sent to you. How often I've long to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus likens you to the, to the mother hen looking to, to protect her children and bring them out of the folly and danger that they're in, 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 in their ignorance, in their, in their, in their juvenileness. But so sadly, in their rebellion, rather than just staying ignorant and not knowing their left from their right, these people's sin that Jesus is talking to becomes high-handed. Because despite being sent sage and prophet and teacher, despite that, what's going to happen? Look at verse 34. Jesus says, I'm sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come the blood, uh, the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the, the righteous blood of Abel, the first one to be killed in the, in the Old Testament, to the blood of Zechariah, the, the prophet, the son of Ze- uh, Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. And there's a lesson there to learn, isn't there? That if you push and push with your rebellion against God, it will be met with kindness and graciousness. And he will send, send people with the good news to, to bring you back. But if you push long enough and hard enough, and you keep pushing and pushing and pushing, eventually God says, that's enough. And the woes that Jesus speaks will come on this generation because they would refuse to take the care. How did they judge Jesus? They judged him as one that they could ignore, one that they could reject, one that they could rebel against. And the measure they used will be used to them. Makes you be careful about how you judge, and particularly how you judge Jesus. And friends, can I highlight here, if you've been on a journey away from Jesus. Oh man, come back. Come back. Why do people run away from Jesus when all he's wanting to do is bring them under the wing of his care? And if you continue to to just push and push and ongoingly ignore Jesus, the measure you use to him will be the measure he uses to you. And he measures us as someone who needs help and he gives us that help. But if you measure him as someone who, oh man, I need that help, I want to listen to him, then the measure you use to Jesus is the measure he'll use to you and he'll welcome you with open arms. All right, let's, let's, uh, let's bring this to an end. I, I want to finish actually by praying because a passage like this, as it exposes the hypocrisy in other people, you cannot help but feel some of the same hypocrisy in your own life. You know, that whole, every time you point the finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you, that kind of moment. And so I want to finish by praying. Because we as a church worldwide, we as a, we as a church here in, in, at Seoul, at Wollongong, me as an individual, as Peter Blanche, you as an individual, you, we've all got our guilty quota of sin that nails us as the hypocrite. And so we ought to pray and ask God for forgiveness and confess our sins and how that will lead us in that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight, shoulder to shoulder, we bow our heads down because we want to confess sins. 
some of these sins we confess today may well be particularly true for us, maybe particularly true for wider churches, but it's good for us to come clean. Father, we're sorry for the damage done to, to your people when churches and leaderships in churches have split over minor issues. Father, we confess the times where perhaps leaders in churches have committed adultery while preaching against it. We confess the sins even of small group leaders and ministry leaders who have indulged in habitual pornography while they preached holiness and sexual purity. Father, we confess the sins of greedy ministers who are not open with their finances. Confess the sins of church leaders who have bullied and coerced people to do things against their will, who preach grace but don't act according to grace. Father, we confess the sins of church leaders who have often wanted to win an argument but not win a soul. Confess the sins of prayerless leaders, so often at their desk but rarely on their knees. Father, we confess our own sins as people at times who have loved the truth but have been lacking in zeal. Father, we confess the times when when we become clicky in our friendships and prefer the fellowship of our own people, not having arms open wide to welcome new people. Father, we confess the times when we've been too silent to speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves and we confess the times we've not used our wealth to care for the poor. Father, each of us will have sins. Some are the same, some will be different. But please convict us, Father. And by your spirit, turn us away from these sins and turn us to serving you. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name and for his honour. Amen.